Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Streets Ahead, your podcast dedicated to all things, all things, without exception, cycling, walking and wheeling in the UK and apparently beyond. I'm Ned Bolting. I'm Laura Laker. And I'm Adam Tranter. And this time... We're talking about distracted driving, what it does to our simple human brains and how it's a far, far bigger problem than actually most of us realise. And uh, with that in mind, our guest this time, who we'll hear from shortly, is Dr Gemma Briggs, an applied cognitive psychologist who's an expert on distracted driving and multitasking while driving. Gemma is a senior lecturer in psychology at the Open University, where she's part of the Driving Change Research Project on distracted driving. She also advises West Midlands Police and the Central Motorway Police Group. So we'll hear from Gemma shortly, who Laura has interviewed at length. But first of all, it's been a while since we've done any kind of a recording. What's everyone been up to? What have you been up to, Adam? I've been mainly doing fancy dress stuff. So I... (laughs) Um, uh, Coventry is the UK city of culture which is great Uh, and I was asked to take part in a bicycle procession to celebrate the fact that Coventry was was the heart of the cycling industry and its pioneers invented the penny farthing and the modern safety bicycle so I I was was cycling a, a large tricycle bright yellow electric tricycle with a giant bust of James Starley on the back um, on a trailer. Uh, and James Diley was the, the chap who invented many little gizmos for the bicycle and, and invented the um, the ordinary, the penny farthing. So we did that and went around Coventry with a police escort and loads of music and stuff. And that was uh, unusual, but fun. <laughs> and got on, the, got on the telly. Got on the telly. Well done. Well did done. you? Yeah. Have you ever, <laughs> did, you try, did you try riding a penny farthing? Have you ever tried riding a penny farthing? I've not, and it's on my um, it's on my fairly predictable niche bucket list uh, of things to, to to do. Really, I'd love to let's have a go, but I've not, yeah, not had a go. I've ridden the safety bicycle, yeah. but that's that's old. That's from eighteen eighty five, but it is just like a bicycle today. Yeah. That's the point, yeah. really. Never ridden a 
penny farthing. Would love to have a go. How about I, you? I, I have. I've tried. I've tried, but and it's truly ah. terrifying. I mean, it's it's. Have you tried, Laura? It's terrifying. I tried. Um, there's a guy called Joff Summerfield who actually built his own penny farthing. Apparently, the penny farthing world's quite niche, and um, and uh, <laughs> like, well, obviously, it's quite niche. There's not many people who ride them. <laughs> Um, so anyway, he just, he couldn't get hold of one. So he decided to try and make one himself and he went through various iterations and he finally came up with one and then he cycled around the world on it and he went up to Everest base camp on it and it's just incredible. So, um, he was down by the Thames, uh, his, his kind of studio and he let me, I did an article about him and he let me sit on this thing and he kind of walked alongside me with his hands out and I just, it's like riding a giraffe or something. As far as I remember, there's something slightly counterintuitive that you have to do with the steering, isn't there? You have to kind of do it, uh, like steer in reverse and you have to move in like the opposite way that you think or anyway. And also you're really high up and if you fall off, it's going to really hurt. So I found the whole thing desperately frightening, yeah. It's really frightening. When he was descending, he used to put his legs over the top of the handlebars and um, in case he, because so that if he crashed, you didn't just get like thrown onto Brilliant. his head. Yeah, there's a, there is a because <laughs> you're just on top of a massive wheel. There is a reason why uh, why the bicycles since then were called the safety bicycle. Yeah, uh, mainly because they were a hell of a lot safer. Laura, you've um, you were telling me just before we started recording you, your media reporting guidelines um, masterpiece oeuvre is now complete and has been sent ah. out into the world. Yeah. 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 It has. Yeah. Yeah. That was a long piece of work. It's maybe one of the biggest pieces of work. I don't know. One of my biggest pieces of work I've ever done. I was just thinking about this, actually. It was Adam's idea originally. So we've got Adam to blame. We were at some parliamentary event back in like early 2020. And he's like, I've got this idea. And I said, oh, that's that's a good idea. And then, yeah, and then it's just become this massive thing. So, yeah, media reporting guidelines for road collisions. Yeah, it's been a really long process. Did this massive draft. It was way too long. Did some consultation got some feedback but not enough went to loads of uh, journalists media people asked them what they thought about it it got totally rewritten and it was launched last month I think May yeah feels like ages ago now and yeah and it's out in the world now so yeah we've got 10 guidelines seems to have been largely well received um just stuff like don't say accident say collision don't say car when you mean driver just about accuracy or yeah various things uh yeah and also context that was a really important one that came up from the research so if you're writing about a collision then as a journalist then just add some context about how many collisions there have been in a certain area or if this particular type of collision is more common and yeah and talk to the experts so well done, you. Yeah, so and, it's uh, out there now. Yeah, I was going to say, is, uh, it up. Is, there, is there? Have you been sort of like scouring the media to see how 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 much of it has been actually affected? It's really hard to know, actually, because yeah, there's kind of so much that goes on. I think I think a lot of um, I know, yeah, and I think a lot of kind of media organisations would say that a lot of it is kind of you know, obvious stuff that they should be doing. A lot of people don't say accident anymore. Um, some people still do. Some journalists still do. Um, I think the one that maybe is is a bit trickier for people to wrap their heads around is the saying driver instead of yeah. car by default um, because there's all this, yeah, there's, there's like various kind of concerns. But we're, yeah, we're kind of, this is what we think is people should be doing. Often it's like car hits car and cyclist in collision and one of them's a person and one of them's a vehicle. And so the the only person with agency in this 
sentence is the cyclist and that's where the focus and with it the blame goes and that's the problematic one of the problematic things is that people the vulnerable road users the pedestrian the cyclist they're mentioned and the car you know the car fled the scene and what we end up thinking is these things happen accidents happen cars hit people and there's nothing we can really do about it it's not really thinking that actually there's a person behind the wheel there's a reason they crashed quite often and yeah without presupposing any of that in the aftermath of a collision I think in the vast majority of cases, unless the handbrake goes on a hill and it just rolls from parked, then yeah, there's a, there's a person involved too. So there's, I think it was definitely creating a, a discussion, which was really, you know, part of this. You know, it has to start with a with a discussion, yeah. and not everybody agrees. You know, there are journalists who believe strongly that you should provide agency when there's been uh, a driver involved in a collision, and there's some that feel that. They've been trained that if they did that, they might end up in court or they might end up with legal implications. Mm. And I think having the conversation is, is you know, is really, really important and getting people to think. And even if it's, you know, it doesn't always make it to the, the actual headline, you know, some of these articles I've read in the past don't even, you know, the headline's wrong, but then they don't even mention a driver in any part of it. So I think, yeah, so I think we're, we're, you know, I think that's, that's definitely, definitely, um, definitely progress. I've been doing quite a lot of driving over the last, since I last spoke to you over the last four or five weeks. Um, a lot of it around around Italy uh, um, for hundreds of kilometers every single day at the end of the day. And, um, just could bring it round to the subject that we're going to be discussing today. It was quite funny actually, because I was, I was driving. I mean, the only, unfortunately, the only way to do the job that we do is to hire a car, you know, because there are roads and distances and routes that can't be done any other way. Um, so there's a certain craziness of me yeah. even being on this podcast, given the size of the carbon footprint I've just belched out over Italy, um, for which I apologize, but I'm afraid I needed an income. So but I, I, my, myself and my co-commentator who I was working with, we were commentating every day for six or seven hours uninterruptedly and absolutely frazzled at the end of the day, you'd sort of fall wow. out of the, the commentary position, which was at the finish line of the Giro d'Italia every day, jump in our hire car, enter into the sat-nav, the coordinates of the hotel that the organisation had booked for us the following night, and then sigh deeply when you find out it's four and a half hours away across the Apennines. And and we were oh, both permanently knackered from about stage four onwards. We were just living on fumes, really. So there'd be a bit of a discussion about, oh, would you mind doing the first two hours of driving? And I go, yeah. But my colleague was in the process of um, trying to sell and buy a house. And, and anyone who's ever done that, right, you know oh how God. stressful that is, where you're trying to chase up lawyers and convincing solicitors and estate <laughs> agents and people like that. And... He, he always said, oh, would you mind doing the first two hours because I've got to do my emails and make some calls. And I did. And he just entered a world of pain, trying to wait for a bit more signal to come onto his phone so he could send this email to this lawyer that he needed to be sent within the next half an hour and all that sort of thing. And actually, I was obviously not checking my emails. I was driving, but I was so distracted by how distracted he was on my right that yeah. it became a bit of a running joke. And, and whenever we saw somebody driving incredibly badly in front of us and kind of veering across the central reservation. The kind of standard joke was, oh, look at that, look at that driving. And then you'd go, 
Although to be fair, he's probably got a few emails to send, so cut him a bit of slack. He's probably he's probably just checking his WhatsApp. I mean, you know, he's got to probably buying a yeah, house. Yeah, he's probably buying a house. The poor old boy. You know, sometimes you just got to do it, haven't you? And if you happen to be driving a van at the same time, you know, that's just bad luck, isn't it? But um, it is amazing how connected wow. we all feel we have to be all the time, and that's a big part of it, isn't it? I think. Yeah, there is actually a sort of um, connection with with pro cycling, isn't there? With this, because I, I think there was a photo out during the Giro um, of one of the team cars and the director sportif, who, who you know, the team manager who would be driving the car had. I don't know, uh, three sat-navs, wow. a map, a radio, uh, you know, and that that's that's pretty damn dangerous. I think it was it's called appalling, out, wasn't it? But it, it, it's, it comes from a long sort of alpha male tradition of in the convoy of cars at the back, the kind of managers of the teams are, you know, they, they will never relinquish control of the steering wheel. They have to be on the radio talking to their riders. They have to be calling the shots. They have to be doing it. Yeah, the, the infringements that go on in the convoy, you really don't bear thinking about. So, but I remember going back about six or seven years at the Tour de France, a picture emerging of an Italian rider called Luca Paolini checking his WhatsApp on his phone in the Tour de France. <laughs> He'd actually started the stage with his iPhone in his back pocket because let's face it, sometimes uh, the first two or three hours of a stage on the Tour de France are quite boring and he just wanted to have his phone on him. And he got fined and uh, and uh, docked some time in the thing. So you're now riders of the Tour de France. You're not allowed to take your phones into the race with you. <laughs> but there we go. Yes, gosh, yes. It's, no, it's a big, big old thing. Distracted driving. Yeah, and because I was thinking after um, about this, and um, I was thinking, well, why isn't like having a conversation with someone in the car as as distracting? Like, why isn't that a thing? And according to um, Gemma's research, it's because when you're on the phone to someone and they're in a different place, you're kind of picturing what they're doing and where they are. And that's the same kind of part of your brain that you need to be able to like see the road ahead and process the information that's coming in. And and that doesn't happen when you're in the same place as a, as a person. So yeah, you're kind of creating these mental images which are taking away from your ability to process what's in front of you. Why don't we hear from Gemma now in the interview you did, and then we'll pick up um, off the back of that with some of the, the issues that she's raised. So this is um, Dr. Gemma Briggs. So welcome, Gemma, to Streets Ahead. We're glad to have you on. Perhaps you could kind of explain for our listeners, so you'll probably do it better than I will. Sure. Yeah. So I'm an applied cognitive psychologist um, and I've for the last 15 years just been really interested in dual tasking whilst driving. So most of my research is on mobile phone use by drivers, either handheld or hands free. And I'm just really interested in what happens to people's brains when they try to do two things at once and what the practical applications of that are for driving, which is probably an activity that a lot of us consider to be a kind of normal, mundane, everyday activity, but actually has potential to be massively dangerous. And I think at times there's a tendency for us humans to be a bit complacent about that potentially massively dangerous activity and think that because we do it all the time, we can multitask just fine. So, yeah, so I, I carry out research in that area. We do lots of stuff in the lab. We do driving simulator stuff. We do video-based studies. We track people's eye movements and we measure their reaction times. And 
then we come out and talk to people like you, which is great because we get to share these findings. And then hopefully, hopefully one day, this kind of research might make a real difference. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, driving is you know, potentially such a dangerous thing, but it's so commonplace. And so many, you know, most of us have a driving night. Well, I, I say most of us, it, with younger people, it's less so, but it's it's just such a common thing, isn't it? But it really is several levels above the kind of risk and danger that we could pose to others with anything else in our lives. Yeah, definitely. And I think we are complacent about it. And, but I think that lies with the individual driver, definitely. But it also, some of the blame for that, if you like, lies with car manufacturers and the laws that we have governing what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable mm. to do whilst driving. Because mm. if you look at any car advert, it'll tell you, oh, you can have all this infotainment. You can make best use of your time, free mm. up your time by doing these things while you're driving. So it's sold to us as something that we should be doing and that we can do. Um, but that flies in the face of work like mine and many others. So yeah. I think it's kind of forgivable that drivers think it's okay to do certain things behind the wheel. Um, but yeah, we just need to get the message out that the research says, no, that's very much not okay. <laughs> and um, because, I mean, the, the one thing that we know about is mobile, handheld mobile phone use and sort of texting behind the wheel. We know that's a no-no, although it doesn't stop a lot of us doing yeah. it. Um, I mean, I don't, but yeah, a lot of people do. But your research has shown actually that it's not just handheld mobile phone use, which is dangerous, that other things that we consider both legal and acceptable are actually as dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And it's by no means just my research that's done this. I can't, I wish I could claim it was just me, but it's <laughs> definitely not. There's about 30 years of research in this area that has shown that in terms of safety, in terms of crash risk, there's no benefit to using a hands-free phone over using a handheld phone. And that's what my research is focused on. It's identifying why that's the case. So, you know, if you're using a phone, regardless of whether you're physically holding it or touching it or whether you're having a hands-free phone conversation you're around four times more likely to be involved in a crash or some kind of incident and the thing that got me hooked into this research all those years ago when I was an undergraduate psychology student was I read a study that told me that but it also said do you know what for five minutes after you've ended that phone conversation you're still at that increased crash risk which tells us that it's not necessarily physically touching or manipulating a phone that's the issue it's what your brain's doing it's cognitive distraction mm. so my research since then has tried to identify exactly what what is going on in the brain and what the problem is with conversation but yeah in terms of safety doesn't matter if you're touching your phone I mean ideally of course you wouldn't and that's the law um, but the law isn't the best guide as to what's safe in terms of phone mm. use whilst driving so even though there's 30 years of research on this um, the law is the law is still lagging behind. Yeah, and it's a, it's incredibly frustrating because when they brought the first mobile phone laws in relating to driving in 2003, they were aware of this research in this area, but it was considered too difficult to ban any type of phone use. So it would be very challenging and difficult to ban hands-free phone use. They've had several reviews along the way. The most recent one they had in 2019, and I was invited to give expert evidence at the Transport Select Committee consultation on this. And we, me along with other um, experts, provided quite compelling evidence based on the research to say, you know, this isn't right, this isn't safe. 
And the report that came out of that was really supportive of the research and suggested to the government that they should reconsider mobile phone law and perhaps should should consider banning hands-free phone use as well based on this research. And unfortunately, the government response was the same as it was way back in 2003. Oh, it'll be a bit hard. It'd be really challenging. And and we'd have to think about what that means in terms of revenue loss. And, and not many people die um, at the hands of mobile phone distracted drivers. So there's there's a there seems to be a kind of balance between an acceptable level of road death, um, an acceptable level of loss of revenue. Um, but yeah, so our policymakers are very well aware of this research and they don't dispute it. Um, but they're not going to do anything about it anytime soon. And when you say loss of revenue, what do you mean? Well, if you think about all of the uh, vehicles that we have on our roads, so when you talk to fleet managers, for example, who have you know massive numbers of vans or lorries, delivery drivers, for example, you think yeah. about their day-to-day routine and having to be engaged and in contact all the time. So updates for where the next drop is, if their route's changed, if their delivery time has changed, all of those kind of things. It's become really much part of everyday society that those kind of professional drivers in particular are available and contactable all of the time. So the argument from organisations such as that um, is that, well, we couldn't possibly do our job unless we were able to be in contact all of the time. And if you were to stop us, then we'd have to change policy and practice. And, you know, we might not get so many deliveries, so many drops in in a day. And, and that will, you know, translate into loss of revenue overall. What I will say is there are some lots, in fact, of very forward thinking companies and fleet management in this in this respect who have their own policy that they ban phone use completely. So it's not the case of everyone just sits back, listens to what the the law is and says, okay, we'll carry on. There are some highly responsible companies that are listening to the research. But if we just look at the letter of the law, then they are perfectly legally allowed to put their drivers at significant risk risk by requiring them to have these kind of hands-free conversations constantly in many cases. Wow. So how do the ones that aren't doing it? I mean, I'm thinking sort of, you know, you have Google Maps. So um, if I'm driving somewhere, I don't know, um, I'll have like Google Maps giving me like audio yeah. signals, turn left and right. And you can imagine that, that that kind of thing could be updated. Is that is that how these sort of more yeah. proactive companies are doing it or are they getting drivers to stop every, every so often and I think there's a mixture and it really depends on what business they're in. Um, I think some companies that I've worked with and to update their policy have said that, you know, our drivers will stop every hour and they will call in and there'll be any updates. Some that works for. Others will have um, information sent in that isn't two-way. So you might have a message that will ping in that's read aloud, an audio message which says change of route, phone the office. But the driver can't interact with that. So it's removing that level of interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and others will will have, you know, highly specific things dependent on their on their business and what works for them. So there's definitely ways around it. it it's inconvenient. Almost positively, it's going to be inconvenient across the board. But, you know, it's that 
it's that way up, if you like, between yeah. workplace health and safety, because that's exactly what it is. If you're managing drivers and you're requiring them to be distracted whilst driving, you're elevating their crash risk for the entire duration of their driving working day, then that's a considerable problem. Um, right. So, yeah, it's it's a fine balance, I think. And, you know, there's not one easy one size fits all solution, but there are companies that are really trying. Um, and education, of course, plays a big role as well, educating drivers so that they're motivated not to want to use their phones and to understand why they shouldn't. Yeah, because there are huge pressures on delivery drivers. I watched Ken Loach's uh, Sorry We Missed You the other day, and it was just it's just appalling a glimpse into how driver, how pressurised drivers are in this kind of, you know, you have to hit the numbers and yeah. like their kind of well-being is almost... Um, well, is is secondary really to the <clears throat> delivery of these parcels? It's it's quite it's it's quite incredible, really. Is it, it? Do you think this is where the kind of pressure is coming from? Then it's more the kind of professional, the the fleets of um, delivery drivers. I think there's a lot of pressure there. Absolutely. I mean, it it varies massively between different delivery companies, of course, because as I say, I have worked with some who completely have an outright ban on any phone use, and they still get by. Um, so it. It's so specific and dependent on on individual companies, but yeah, it's it's unpopular this research because it's inconvenient. Um, so it's it's a real challenge, and and ultimately, if policy makers at a fleet level just look to the law, then they they're covered, if you like, because yeah. the law says that this is perfectly legal. In fact, by implication, the law suggests that it's a safe alternative to handheld driving, um, distracted driving. And it really isn't. So, you know, there's there's more to be done with that law, definitely. Because four times more likely to have a crash. Are we, are we sort of talking about uh, comparable with drink driving? Thing? Yeah, it's really similar. It is really similar. Um, and there was a study way back in 2002 done by the Transport Research Lab, and they compared drink driving with distracted driving. And they found distracted driving to be worse in some cases than the legal limit of alcohol um, in a driver's system. So there are those comparisons to be made, but it's not just increased crash risk. There's loads of other um, effects on your on your driving performance, and many of them overlap with drink driving. So, for example, you're far less likely to notice hazards, even if they occur right in front of your eyes. Um, those hazards that you do notice, you take significantly longer to react to. And I know scientists always say all oh, significantly, but what that means is enough of a difference that it can massively impact on your stopping distance. So in some of our research, we found that if there's a hazard in the peripheral areas to the sides of the scene, so you think about someone stepping off a pavement, for example, our distracted drivers could take up to a second longer to react to that. That's if they saw that hazard at all. A second longer to react to it compared to our undistracted drivers. And that equates to more and more, much longer stopping distances, even if you're traveling at what might be considered a relatively low speed of 30 miles an hour. So there's a massive problem with hazard perception in distracted drivers. You'll see other things like them weaving a little bit in their lanes. They tend not to check their mirrors or use their indicators almost if trying to reduce the demands that their brain's trying to cope with. And overall, we've found from some of our research, they're just generally lacking in in situational awareness. So if you were to freeze 
an experiment or a simulation or whatever halfway through and say, what colour is the car behind you? Very unlikely to know because they're not monitoring the environment in, in an appropriate yeah. way, in the way that you should be to, yeah. um, you know, keep track of everything that's going on and avoid collisions. And you can tell, actually, I mean, <clears throat> I'm, I most commonly cycle when I'm um, traveling on the roads these days and you get a bit of a spidey sense and you can kind of tell when someone's on their phone and driving because it's almost like they're floating. They're not driving in a normal way. It's just they're sort of like one speed, which might not be the appropriate speed for the road. They're not really adjusting their trajectory. And it's just you can just tell from behind without even seeing them. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, you definitely can. Some of our researchers looked into that and our theory that we've found some evidence to support is that when drivers are distracted by a phone conversation with handheld or hands-free they they kind of rely on what they expect to happen in normal driving situations mm -hmm. so if you introduce anything a bit out of the ordinary they don't necessarily notice it you know we've whacked up massive smiley faces in a driving simulation that have appeared right in front of the screen and people haven't seen them simply because mm -hmm. they're not expecting to see them and we know that because we look at their eye tracking behavior and mm. and other things whereas if we whack up a road sign they're more likely to notice that because they expect to see that in that given situation so for cyclists some advice and I can't claim credit for this but some advice that um, my PhD supervisor who I work with still Graham Hole over at Sussex said if you're a cyclist or you're a motorcyclist you have to drive or ride as if no one can see you because quite often they don't, um, yeah. because they're not expecting to see you. So it's a real challenge. And from my point of view, that demonstrates a broken system. We can't yeah. have drivers going about their daily business, you know, essentially being unaware of, of other road users to the extent that they could kill them, seriously injure yeah. them. Yeah, that's, that's a problem. <laughs> Yeah, it, it is mildly. a big problem. And um, obviously the, the hands-free is is legal, but uh, there is still a lot of kind of mobile phone use that's illegal, sort of handheld mobile phone yeah. use. And we all know that we shouldn't do it and we know that it's dangerous, but you still see, like we know from police figures and we know from just, you know, seeing it ourselves on the roads that a huge number of people do it. Yeah. And, um, and there's quite an interesting reason for that, isn't there? Yeah, well, most drivers consider themselves to be above average at driving. If you, we've got a survey going at the moment, so we'll get some more up to date results. But it's been tested, you know, via loads of different surveys over the year. About 80% of drivers consider themselves to be above average. So when you survey drivers and you say, right, what do you think about mobile phone law? Many, in fact, most will be in support of mobile phone law. Absolutely, drivers should not be touching their phones whilst driving, not even stopped in traffic, not, you know, completely support that. Then you ask those same people, what about you? How often have you used your phone illegally in the past six months? And how or how often do you do these these things? Do you text? Do you have handheld conversations? Lots of them will say, Oh yeah, I do it. And so there's there's a, a kind of social norm view, which is, no, of course, of course, I fully support the law. Um, but then there's this kind of inflated sense of skill, which mm -hmm. It's very unlikely that 80% of drivers are above average. Some have got to be average. Some have got to be below average. <laughs> it's impossible, isn't it? <laughs> it? I mean, statistically, it's not impossible, but it's hugely <laughs> unlikely. So, you know, some some drivers have to be bad. Some have to, 
have to be below average. But most, the majority, don't think that that's them. So any safety message that comes out that says, tut, tut, you must not use your phone whilst driving, even people who use their phones whilst driving will say, yes, I fully support that. But it doesn't mean me because I've got increased skill, which mitigates that risk. But everybody else, I'm really concerned about everybody else's behaviour, but not me. So there's a massive problem in that we've got seemingly law-abiding citizens who routinely break the law. Um, yeah. And the answer to that is tricky because, you know, you can address their attitudes and how they've got to those attitudes and you can confront them with evidence and you can get them to experience distraction. That's a lot of what we do. Um, but ultimately, if they don't think they're part of the problem, it's very difficult to solve that problem. Yeah. Did we ever have the same problem with drink driving? I think, well... <laughs> I'm, I'm not really up to date on what happened, you know, in, in relation to that, in, in terms of when the law came in. I suspect so. But I think that the distinction between drink driving and distracted driving is that with drink driving, there's a very clear way of measuring that level of intoxication. So, you know, you yeah. can be pulled over, you could say, right, you're drunk, or you're above the legal limit. And here is the evidence at the roadside to prove that. And that that level of alcohol in your blood will have affected all of your driving for that entire period. With distracted driving, it's far more challenging because we haven't got that direct measure. There, there's, there's different approaches that try to look at heart rate and skin conduct, conductivity and all of those kind of things. But practically, you can't do that in, in real world driving. Yeah. Um, so there isn't that, that direct measure. And also when you're distracted, you're not necessarily distracted for the entire duration of that journey. You know, you might not have been on the phone the whole time. You'll have been distracted for a little bit after you've got off the phone. But other parts of the driving might have been absolutely fine. So it's a fine line. Um, but in terms of attitudes, I suspect when drink driving laws came in, there were some saying, oh, I can hold my alcohol. I can. It's It won't affect me in that way. It's just I think it's probably easier to get caught and prosecuted for drink driving than it is for distracted driving yeah it's a bit more conscious isn't it I mean you know when you get in the car if you've had too many drinks and then you know when you set off whereas if you if you use a mobile phone during a journey you might not intend to when you get in the car and you set out you might get part way through and think oh I'll just check there's definitely an element of that and there's but there's also an element that since we've had drink driving laws for a long long time it is now it is quite rightly it's socially unacceptable to drink yeah. driver it's very taboo so much so that people will intervene you know if you're with your mates yeah. at the pub back in normal days when we could do such things I'm having your car keys you are not driving home that would yeah, be yeah. a kind of commonplace thing it's not the same with distracted driving and um, and we know from other research that you know you're more likely to engage in distracted driving yourself if you're in vehicles with friends or family members who also do that because again it's that social norm it's that yeah. social acceptability so until we get phone use distracted driving to be as taboo as drink driving then I think we're going to continue to encounter lots of problems yeah and it I mean it's a it's a massive problem isn't it it's um it's we know it's a big problem from police statistics but your kind of thinking from your research is that it's actually a much bigger problem than we realise even now. Yeah, so there, there's an issue in terms of how we record these things. So at the moment, obviously, the police 
enforce the law. So the law is handheld, uh, a ban on handheld phone use. So at the moment, if police attend a an incident and they can gather enough evidence that phone use is involved in that incident, then it will the contributory factor for that incident will be you know distracted driving phone use what they won't do at the moment um as a matter of course is record hands-free phone use because of course that's legal um and the police have to enforce the law as it stands so at the moment if we look at statistics for contributory factors to incidents then it's pretty low phone use and there are various reasons why it's pretty low. It's because it's very difficult to gather that evidence. It's very difficult to know. And often um, people will contest these things. So unless your road traffic policing officer has on body cam, for example, the screen of the person's phone, they can show that it's being used for an interactive communicative function. They're not using their calculator or something or anything else they might claim. Unless they've got that level of evidence, they're likely to be challenged. So that's an issue. Um, So the recording of that would suggest it's not a massive problem. But in 2019, and this is pretty consistent across years, 67% of all police attended incidents were attributed to driver error. And this is like a a, a kind of massive orange blob on a chart, which says "Mm, driver error, almost as if, well, there's not a lot we can do about that. Um, But I would argue that research including my own and that of many others, can explain aspects of that driver error, why that's happened. Not just, oh, well, driver error, human error, nothing can be done about it. We can say, look, this is an error in visual perception and attention. And this is why, because they're looking, but they're not seeing, for example. So I would argue that many incidents that are at the moment are attributed to driver error could quite logically be attributed to hands-free mobile phone use which is, of course, oh, and, and indeed handheld that hasn't been detected, but yeah. hands-free, you know, completely legal. So I think it's a much bigger problem. And if you look at other data, we know it's a global thing. Self-reported phone use is increasing. People are doing it more and more because they're being encouraged to do it more and more. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big problem and it's going to get bigger. Yeah, and it's not going away. Um, have, you, have we seen the, an increase in these kind of look looking, not seeing um, collisions since mobile phone use has increased? And it's not it's not just that mobile phone use has increased, it's that we're, we're just on them so much more, aren't we? Especially, I guess, since the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's difficult to know if we can attribute increased numbers of collisions directly to look looking but failing to see because that data mm. just simply isn't recorded. Um and and that is a real problem. We need to update how how that's recorded. Um, it is, in overall terms, it is an increasing issue, definitely. Um, so there was a recent report came out from European Commission that suggested between 10 and 30% of all incidents are likely to have been, um, had a mobile phone involved in them. Um, mm. So, you know, it, it's really challenging because over here we could say, oh, in 2019, 18 people died as a result of um, an incident involving a handheld mobile phone. And there might be some will say, well, that's not many, if you think about it in the grand scale. I mean, hopefully you'd argue that any death is a death too many. Um, But if you compare that to things like speeding, then it's kind of dwarfed. But, you know, if we widen that focus and we think about other aspects, human error, driver error, 
and deaths associated with that, suddenly it's a much, much bigger problem. And, you know, we've, we're still at the point where we have five people dying a day on UK roads. And UK roads are amongst the safest in the world. Mm. Um, but it's not going down. It's plateaued. And it's been that way for several years now. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in that same period, self-reported mobile phone use has gone up. Um, so, yeah, there's some unpicking to be done. I think. Yeah. So maybe some aspects of um, <clears throat> our roads and our vehicles have become safer, but then there's a chance that they're that it's being offset by by mobile phone use. Exactly. Um, and potentially other things. And it's not just mobile phones, is it? It's um, the kind of inbuilt um, systems in cars. I saw um, I saw a review of a car uh, recently. It had um, like a dashboard that basically was a screen. Yeah. And you could have things like fish, like a, you know, nice fish swimming around. And I just thought, who would want that? Yeah. Like, why would you, you're driving around, there's a lot going on, especially if you live in a built up area, which most of us do now. Yeah. Like, why would you want an additional thing flickering around in your peripheral vision? It's just, it just seems, I can't even believe that it's been made, but this, but this is a trend, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, car manufacturers will put into their vehicles, the technology that will sell vehicles. Yeah. Um, so you know there'll be people oh cool I can have fish swimming around in my car it's I mean it's odd um but but it will sell so and at the same time those car manufacturers will say look you've got the highest level of infotainment in your car you can do all of these things you can save time you can um achieve more you can keep up with everyone else and at the same time they say and our cars are really safe so they can say you know uh we've got automatic braking systems we've got park assist we've got lane keeping and and that's all great that safety technology definitely has a place but together those messages suggest a you've got some spare attention because your car will look after you and yes. b you can kind of disengage with certain aspects of that driving task mm -hmm. because your car's so safe mm -hmm. and c car manufacturers who we all trust of course are telling us that it's safe <laughs> and they wouldn't have put that technology in our vehicles if it hadn't been rigorously safety tested mm -hmm. so there's a real issue there and I'd love to go after some car manufacturers because it you know there's there's regulatory stuff in terms of advertising standards and a few have been pulled up in recent years um, and a few phone companies actually have been pulled up in recent years but it seems that they can put whatever they want in there. And as long as drivers don't have to touch it, physically touch it whilst they're in motion, then it's fine. And then we can just kind of disregard 30 years of research, which says this is really not fine. Um, yeah, so a, a big problem. Wow. Yeah, because I mean, the, the last cars I owned were made in the 90s. Um, <laughs> I was <laughs> really old. But you could tell where the buttons were. They were like physical things yeah. that you could feel in the car. And you knew where to, you didn't even have to look. You could like reach for the window thing. You could do the yeah. indicators and the screen wash and everything. And it's like, that's all you needed. But now you've got like, I think, are there touch screens? Or that's yeah. not allowed? Yeah. No, there's absolutely touch screens. In some vehicles, I'm sure I heard something about a Tesla. And in order to turn the wipers on, you had to navigate three menus on a touch screen. Oh you know, so it's almost the kind of technology for the sake of technology because it mm. looks all flash and whizzy. Um, yeah. But actually, you know, what you're saying in terms of ergonomics and having buttons that you can push and things that you know are where they should be because they were there when you learned to drive. <laughs> you know, you know where your indicators are. You don't have to yeah. consciously 
take your eyes off the road to look for them. Yeah, so definitely some issues. So your screens, your windscreen's rainy, plus you've got three different screens to navigate inside the vehicle. So what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So with the trends that we've talked about, it seems like things are kind of getting pushed basically it's like we're pushing what we can or what we believe we can do within a vehicle and there don't seem to be that many checks on it at present do you think is there any sign that that's going to change in this country or sort of internationally is there legislation being brought in or I don't know I mean I don't see it changing massively in terms of legislation in this country um, at the moment they're looking into closing a loophole in the law which came out of that consultation that I gave evidence at. So there was a case over here, um, a Barreto case, of an individual who was um, caught by the police filming a road traffic incident on his mobile phone. Um, he got prosecuted for mobile phone use, um, but then appealed and got that prosecution overturned because the argument was the phone wasn't being used for an interactive communicative function. He was filming, he wasn't distracted because he was filming. And that had a massive impact on what is phone use? What does it mean? Is, is it just physically just holding your phone in your hand? Is that a problem even if not, you're not using it? What about if you've got it between your knees whilst you're driving and then you check it at traffic lights? What about if you need to use Apple Pay or, or something through a drive-through? Um, so at the moment in this country, they're trying to close this loophole in relation to what phone use is but of course that doesn't help people like me who know that they're focusing on the wrong thing of course we don't want people physically holding a phone of course it's better to have two hands on the wheel but it doesn't mitigate any of the cognitive distraction so in terms of legislation yeah it's good that they're closing a loophole will it make a massive difference in terms of number of incidents will it improve road safety massively i'd argue not because they're not going after the right problem. And it also serves to reinforce the idea that hands-free is safe. So yeah. I don't see any massive change there. Um, and internationally, I don't really see any massive change either. I think there's different areas that are looking um, like graduated driver's licenses and things like that, mm -hmm. whereby, you know, if you're a newly qualified driver, you can only do certain things. And in some areas, I think in Australia, for example, in New Zealand, they'll say, right, no phone use, zero phone use for the first year or so of your of you having a license. Um, oh, really? And then you'll have to kind of learn as you, you know, you, your experience increases, then that might be introduced if you haven't had any kind of incident. I think there's some merit to that. But I'd argue, why do we need to introduce the phone <laughs> if they've managed that long without it's it it's not about experience is it it's um it's no. about just the fact that we our brains can't handle it and I mean you talked about the the loophole around interactive phone use you you um you told me that um calculator use is actually legal so yeah. you can be driving along and using a calculator on your mobile phone and, and because it's not interactive that's currently legal yeah yeah I mean I, I question how many people would want to do that but yes um, I know I'm just, they, you're just like what is what is the square root of um... <laughs> but of course there is a, a more serious side to that which is uh, I know I'm not advocating this in any way of course but this is why it's a particular challenge for roads policing operatives because mm. they pull someone over and they say I've seen that you've got your phone in your hand yeah that yeah. is illegal well at the moment in, until they close that loophole unless that traffic officer has got 
evidence like body cam evidence or some other evidence for what's going on on that screen that driver at the moment could go I'm just checking the square root of 634 you know I wasn't using it for an interactive community function so it's fine kind of worrying if you if you use the roads uh in this country and, and many countries around the world because it, it sounds like maybe no one's got this kind of pinned down no no um as far as I'm aware there aren't any outright bans anywhere it is worrying and it is a big problem to tackle for policymakers. I know it's easy for people like me to say, just ban it. It's not safe. Um, mm. I'm not so naive to think that, you know, you could just introduce a ban and hey-ho, everything's everything's solved. But yeah. as I said in the evidence session, just because something's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Um, yeah. We can save lives. So why wouldn't we? And, and why is it that at the moment there's an acceptable number of road deaths? It, it's it's just odd we don't have an acceptable number of homicides yeah. um, but it, it seems that there's an assumption that deaths on the road are somehow inevitable and therefore you know it's quite difficult so what what can we do to to change that well we can teach children to cross the road safely yeah but the children aren't the problem if it's the drivers who aren't aware that those children are there so yeah it, I mean it sounds pretty bleak doesn't it <laughs> but there is stuff we can do <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, like you said, it just needs to become socially unacceptable. I mean, I say just, it's not, that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, because I've not very often occasionally uh, cycled with my hands-free Bluetooth thing in. And yeah, and I was telling my mum about your research and she was like, oh, because I spoke to her once when I was cycling on the bike on that, like a cycling. And uh, she said, oh, do you ever do that on your bike? And I was like, oh, I've done it actually, (laughs) mum. People do. And, and, you know, it's legal. You're allowed to do it. Um, yeah. So with this kind of research as well, lots of people are, are, are unaware. So I go and give mm. talks left, right and centre. And quite often, I know when we first talked, you said I had no idea. I didn't know, you know, that all yeah. of this was directly yeah. comparable. And that's the most common experience I have of yeah. speaking to people. So there's there's lots to be done in terms of spreading awareness and educating yeah. But it has yeah. to be done in a particular way. It can't be a finger wagging, oh, naughty you. Um, yeah. It needs to be done in a, did you know this? Because, and, and maybe try this out and you can experience some distraction for yourself. And that's equivalent to what's happening when you're having a hands-free phone conversation. Okay, I'm not going to do it again. After <laughs> you've changed my, I mean, I just didn't realise, like you said, and I think most of us, I think many of us don't. So No, yeah. absolutely. It's going to pull over. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's it's just it's just kind of changing that routine and changing mm. that mindset. And I think once that change has happened, then you can maintain it. And if we can get many, many, many individuals to change their mindset, then we might actually make a change. I think that's more likely to happen than a change in legislation. Thank you. It's lovely to talk to you. And you. That was fascinating. I, I thought that was genuinely, like, I, I feel like I know uh, quite a bit about this topic i go on about it but yeah just just some of the, the the points i hadn't thought about and and how difficult it would be to change the law um because of the whole impact on on businesses but also it reminds me of the thing that the, the government put a higher value on productivity for drivers than they do on other road users so they probably have a, some in their calculation they probably have a sort of david brent style calculation of the the a driver cycle driver going up and down the motorway selling 
products and on doing deals on the time as well but yeah it's it was it was really um oh it's it's super super interesting and i've i've kind of got really concerned myself just when i'm cycling you can just see through the rear view mirrors of teslas and other things and just the size of the screens that are now again they're they're like tvs aren't they they're like widescreen hd tvs yeah I actually had no idea that these things existed until a couple of days ago. And I was walking with my boyfriend and I saw this thing pull out of a side road. We were walking on the pavement and I was like, what the hell's that on the dashboard? And it's a 17 inch screen. And like Gemma was saying, I think there's like three buttons for the indicators or something that you have to go through a menu. And you just think, how is that legal? And like interactivity with your phone isn't. And it's just, yeah, it's just astonishing. I didn't actually know that, um, that hands-free mobile phone use was as dangerous as um, handheld mobile phone use in terms of distraction. And she was saying that it's four times more, uh, you're four times more likely to crash if you're on your phone than, than if not. And that distraction lasts for five minutes after the phone call is over. So it's really, it was, yeah, the whole thing was really shocking because, yeah, as I said, I sometimes used to use hands-free and cycle and I'm not going to do that anymore because actually it's yeah it's a really difficult one isn't it morally so Gemma made the point several times you know this this isn't using your phone on hands-free is not technically is not even not even technically it's not illegal and for many of us who are really interested in road safety and want the roads to be safer for everybody you know it's morally very difficult to want to use your phone you know to have it i've got mine connected to my car on hands-free you know uh, should be disconnecting it and but societally we would you know the interview is talking about how this needs to be i think you said it laura like it needs to be as socially unacceptable as 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 drink driving and i think that's that's really interesting and valid and actually i had you know i had a meeting like this recently and I, i read about someone else's meeting where you know joining you know a zoom call and it's very zoom has a driving mode like it has a thing like so you know someone what? was on there yeah what? it has a not not for video it turns video off i think to be fair okay. so um, it becomes like it, a conference a, call basically yeah 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 exactly um i think it turns the video off anyway and um yeah and, and this person was sort of driving listening in chipping in and and you know i I probably should have said something but but socially it's again it's not you know it, i would be an outlier by saying hold on i'm gonna i'm not joining in on this call because you know so and so is driving that's you know four times more likely to have a crash if that's the if that's the case that would i would seem like the odd one uh in that situation i mean there the are a few different problems here and one of the most possibly difficult to deal with is less um potentially less about how do you kind of legislate for the interior of a car and what do you declare to be illegal and what what contravenes regulations that you could introduce? Because I think there possibly if the political will were there, there would be technologies that you could employ to literally stop people, you know, operate if they were if there were only a driver in the car and no one else, your car could know that and therefore disable certain functions. I, I think that's probably not beyond the wit of man. But what is what is a kind of more ingrained and textured and intransigent problem in our lives is the fact that as I alluded to before that all of us need to be connected to the world all the time and and psychologically if we feel we aren't uh, it kind of it, it kind of nags away at you doesn't it so even when I 
commute across London by bike, I find myself um, stopping at traffic lights and actually repeatedly kind of taking my bike onto the pavement because I think I need to check my email or actually need to respond to that WhatsApp or make a phone call and I stop by the side of the road. So my, my cycling commute turns into this kind of fractured sort of um, experience where I'm constantly, I feel like I can't go 20 minutes of just, of just riding without actually checking that I'm not missing out on stuff or that stuff hasn't piled up or that there's not an urgent resp- thing that I haven't replied to. And it's, um, I don't know what we do about that quite because that's just how we live our lives now. Yeah, I think I think there has to be these quiet moments of we well we know this stuff's bad for our health anyway, like being on our our phone as much. And I think there has to be you know there has to be places where that's just you know socially not seen as something you can do. And also it relies on employers, it relies on you know society generally ringing someone and go, I can hear you driving. I'm not, you know, I'll, I'll call you back later or no stress if, you know, or, or, or whatever. And I think that's, that's a really important thing. My, my, my worry is, is that the, the tech, uh, especially I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, especially in the kind of in-car infotainment systems, because that for me, I, I guess it links to my interest in general, like of advertising and, 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 you know, what makes cars attractive and, you know, it's, it's being pushed as, you know, these infotainment systems are being pushed as a, a luxury that you should have that, you know, uh, are one of the key features of the car. And we were talking about this at the um, at the all-party parliamentary cycling and walking group. And we, you know, we thought it was ludicrous that these just screens were being installed and getting bigger and bigger. And, and actually, one of the patrons, Lord Barclay, asked the government in a question about whether they've made any assessment of the distraction of driving, driving using in-vehicle infotainment systems. And they responded, Baroness Vere of Norberton responded, we have not taken an assessment of the distraction of drivers using in-vehicle infotainment systems. So basically car manufacturers are, are deciding the future of our road safety in any which way that they want. And, and despite there being, you know, probably good researchers out there, it's not being taken, you know, seriously at a legislative sense um which is which is yeah i'm getting quite quite depressed by by the interview um as a, as Gemma was you know sort of saying oh, it was quite you know quite a bleak subject it, it is and, and you feel sort of slightly powerless at the problem so so large it, it can't be tackled and yeah and it's kind of driven by what sells cars like she said which is not really how we should be deciding how to make our roads you know deciding what's safe on the road I mean there's no decision being made and there's no data even about what kind of level of danger these these kind of technologies may be having on on the road and because we don't kind of measure we don't measure them we can't measure them at the moment so cars get safer in one way with like lane assist or all these other kind of um like braking and yeah all the stuff that I never had in my cars, so it's a bit of a mystery to me. But yeah, but then on the other hand, it's getting more dangerous with with more technology. So yeah, it's a bit like the the thing where cars are getting more efficient, but then we're adding loads of SUVs to our our fleets. So it's it's all balancing itself out. I've just been reminded of a Mr. Bean sketch from <laughs> from well, well, whenever Mr. Bean was a thing. Um, my kids watch it now. Actually, it's an animated series now. It's not quite the same. But um, he, you know, he used to sort of shave in his car, didn't he? And and all sorts of stuff. Like that. Do you remember that? And I guess, 
I guess that's indicative of how society, um, uh, I guess, didn't think anything of that and probably still quite doesn't think anything of that now or maybe they think twice. Or maybe he was poking fun at it, at the kind of stupid things that people do in their cars. Yes, possibly. Maybe there was a deep subtext to the Mr. Bean sketch that I've missed out on. But uh, yeah, no, it just, just reminded me of that. But that's where, like you're saying, the kind of the arms race of what the manufacturers are supplying in terms of you know the the way the direction of travel there is is kind of very much we're into a prevailing headwind here aren't we with our with our try our attempts to try and curb or, or reconfigure behavior and that's where the, the problem is I don't, I don't want to sound too depressing about it but the problem is very different isn't it from the drink driving problem and it's where that comparison breaks down because the drink driving problem that the it was was a momentum that grew and it just became incrementally more and more uh, obvious that that was what what you should clamp down on but it wasn't as if the motor manufacturers were kind of installing cocktail bars and um <laughs> you know optics and and they weren't in like they weren't encouraging you to be you know as far as i remember that, that it wasn't something that was being foisted on you by the the people who are providing the material that, with which you operated it was exactly. so that was that was a behavioral change that society itself could independently of the motor industry decide on you know yeah whereas whereas here we're being led by the nose a bit because they're they're bloody brilliant we've said this before about cars haven't we they know what they're doing the tech's extremely good and it's beguiling you know it creates this environment that is very very appealing so that's where that's where it's a slightly more difficult problem isn't it and it's probably where you do need government to step up to the plate and actually start to regulate these things yeah, like so, General was saying, like how many yeah. how many deaths is acceptable, really? How much distraction are we willing to accept? Right? Yeah, that's interesting in itself, isn't it? Because um, government ministers and MPs keep inadvertently making this point when they want lockdown to be lifted and, and things like that. They keep saying, well, we accept X amount of thousand road deaths, you know, kind of thing. And, and no one no one minds about that. So, you know, what... Effectively, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, we need to put this into context. And actually, you know, that highlights how absurd that situation is. That we can, you know, we can just sort of gloss over the fact that thousands and thousands of people incredible. lose their lives and don't need to. Yeah, it is. It is incredible. And actually, I've been. It's slightly different, but it's related to road safety. But I've been kind of quite fascinated and interested recently about how the the flaws in the law and actually it's you know it's andy cox uh detective chief uh superintendent andy cox um who is the national roads police lead i think for um collision investigation yeah, or right. collision reporting or something um and um he's been doing this that he did this run he raised loads of money for road peace and he i was talking to him i, I phoned him up and we were having a chat and and he said that you know for example he could pull over a driver doing you know, 100 miles an hour or 110 miles an hour in a 30 zone. And other than reporting that driver for the offence, for example, that driver would then be just totally free to go about their business once they've been reported to the offence. They'd have to be said, maybe summoned to court, but they could drive, you know, to that court. And that's because the law doesn't class speeding in itself as as an indication of dangerous driving. So you cannot... You cannot seize a vehicle for you know seize a vehicle from a driver for 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 purely speeding, even if that speeding is extreme. Uh, there has to be they have to be doing something else that would indicate it being dangerous. Speeding is not itself is seen as dangerous uh, in the eyes of 
the law of what police can act upon. So they can just report you for the offence. And I just think that's nuts, you know. And, and, and then when it comes to all of the nuances about careless driving, dangerous driving, this is a whole other, you know, episode potentially. But, you know, somebody in Coventry who I'm in touch with, her, his daughter, Isabel, was, was, was killed while crossing the road by a, by a car driver. And he was able to get careless driving rather than dangerous driving and didn't get a prison sentence, didn't get a fine because that would be too impactful for that chap's family. And had to be the judge had to be reminded by the CPS of the fact that uh, he needed a driving ban handing down. You know, the, the judge wasn't going to do that. It was just incredible. But the point being is that that chap now can't, can't appeal against the sentence the dad can't appeal against the sentence because uh, careless driving isn't on the list of sentences that you can appeal it's those subtle nuances that you know careless or dangerous speeding whether that's dangerous or not whether distracted driving that was being told about in the interview you know is logs isn't a contributory factor all these subtle things are very hard to get through legislation because man in the street just thinks that you know like it, it it doesn't make anyone so angry that they're going to go and march to, to Downing Street because it's all quite nuanced. Um, and I think that's one of the big problems with, with road safety. Yeah, well, good. Glad we've solved that. <laughs> yeah. I think we can do a whole episode on, on that one. Dangerous and careless, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, um, that's, probably, that's probably it from us. We've just presented you with a cartload of problems and no solutions. Well done, yeah. us. Yeah, I was um, thinking, I don't know, I was thinking, you know, to maybe to end on a high note, maybe, Adam, um, you know, yeah. you've got this Bike is Best campaign. Maybe you need to do an advert, like a, something along the lines of, you're not as good a driver as you think. So everyone thinks they're a great driver, but in reality, get them on a the phone and they're dreadful. They're, they're, they're liabilities on the road. I don't know. Maybe we could, maybe we could poke fun at that a little bit and make people think, okay, yeah, maybe I'm not that good. Anyway, just a thought. Yeah. That's the only solution I could come up with. Yes. Yeah. Well, I can tell you. Well, yeah. Public service announcements. Yeah, exactly. I can tell you I'm not as good a cyclist as I think I am. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> there was that ad. There was that ad actually that was pretty good quite like a decade ago from TFL, which um, called the Moonwalking Bear. And they, they had a, um, you should, I'll put it in the, the show notes, go and have a look. But basically, the voiceover says, you know, how many how many passes does the basketball team do? And you're, you're watching the basketball team pass, 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 pass. And then you get to the end and said, but did you see the moonwalking bear? And then rewind and watch it again. And basically, while you're watching all the passes, there was a moonwalking oh, bear, a guy dressed up in a bear costume I going through the thing and now. saying, you yeah. know, you, you won't see things you don't look for kind of thing. And I, I thought that was really impactful and good. And yeah, maybe we need more more of that stuff than just the shock tactics of please don't yeah. kill each yeah, other. Maybe, maybe yeah. be a bit smarter about it. All right. Well, um, thanks for introducing us, Laura, to uh, Dr. Gemma Briggs. And um, thanks everybody for listening. You've been listening to Streets Ahead. Let us know what you think at Pod Streets Ahead. Rate us, review us and share, please share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it. And next time we meet uh, we'll do it all again in the meantime from all of us goodbye bye bye why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim 
Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.